it's always something. If it's not one thing, it's another, right? All right, so sometimes it's the battery, sometimes it's the clicker, sometimes it's both. Now we got it worked out. All right, so today we're going to continue our study uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, this week we're coming to uh, Acts chapter 7, and what we're going to be looking at today is uh, the defense. Remember last time we talked about the prosecution, uh, the Sanhedrin versus Stephen, and this week we're going to look at Stephen's defense, which really isn't much of a defense. It's more of a witness than it is a defense. And uh, you know, when I used to go to court to uh, argue motions before judges, uh, I would have this big, long script out, written out about what I wanted to say, and uh, I'm sure it was a brilliant argument that I had written, but unfortunately, I never got to say more than like the first sentence or two before the judge would cut me off and start asking me questions that he wanted answered rather than letting me get through my uh, brilliantly written script. So uh, if you want to know why I talk so fast up here sometimes, it's because I'm afraid you're all going to cut me off and not let me say what it is that I want to say. So, uh, But the thing about this speech that's so amazing is that Remember that Stephen has been brought forth before this Sanhedrin. Uh, they're a violent and angry mob. They're thirsty for blood. And uh, they, they basically ask Stephen the question, are these things so, which we'll see in a minute. Uh, and then they let Stephen go on for eight minutes, which was how long it took me to read this uh, chapter out loud. Eight minutes they let him go on for before uh, they interrupted him. And they only interrupted him because it was at that point uh, that he called them stiff-necked and various other things that uh, got him into a bit, little bit of a trouble uh, with them. So I don't know how to explain that other than it's the power of God uh, to calm their hearts uh, long enough that he was able to say uh, what it was that he wanted to say to the Sanhedrin about recounting uh, Israel's history. And uh, you'll remember that back in chapter 6, this, this group, the Synagogue of Freedmen, uh, they had brought Stephen before the Sanhedrin and they made a couple charges against him. They said this in verse 611, they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And then in 613, he says, they have put, forth false, uh, put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this place and against the law. And of course, these charges are very serious. There's not much more serious uh, thing that you could say uh, about uh, somebody than that. Uh, and so he's being charged with speaking against Moses and God and the temple and the law. Now, we know that Stephen had some kind of encounter with Jesus because he was full of the Holy Spirit, right? That is why he was chosen to be one of the seven men who were going to witness uh, and minister to the Hellenistic widows. Uh, so I think that a better question that these uh, Sanhedrin could have asked uh, Stephen would not have been the question that they, they did ask. They said, are these things so? These charges in verses 611 and 613, are these things so? I think a better question would have been, Stephen, uh, we see a change in you. You're one of us. You're one of our brethren. You've been raised in the same traditions that we have. What has happened to you? Uh, tell us about your conversion. Tell us uh, these things that make you different from us now and why you're teaching these things that you are teaching. Uh, but the Sanhedrin wasn't interested in those kinds of questions. Uh, they were interested in doing what they thought they were doing, which was defending God, defending the law, defending the temple as if God uh, needs defending, right? They thought they were upholding what God wanted uh, them to, to say and do. But Stephen had a story, and he was going to tell his story. And and so this just reminds us, uh, when you get a chance to witness, tell your story. 
your story is unique. Your story is different than everybody else's story. And you know, when, when you come across people who are hostile to your message, well, they may be hostile to your theology, but they cannot argue with your story. Uh, what has happened in your life? What changes have come about in your life because you have heard the gospel uh, and you used to be this person, but now you're this person? And, and they can't argue with that, so always be sure you get your story in. Uh, I have read this chapter of Acts many times, as I'm sure you have too. Uh, it's a long chapter, uh, the, this, this defense that he makes. And if you're like me, maybe you've skimmed over the first 50 verses or so because you know the history of Israel. You know uh, what happened with Abraham and Joseph and Moses and David. And, and maybe you want to get to the good part where Stephen is going to slam these guys with his accusations. And so maybe you've skimmed a bit over uh, the history of Israel. Uh, but I realized this week that, that Stephen wasn't just you know, showing off, right? Saying that he knows the history of Israel and here it is. Uh, he was talking to these guys and recounting their history with a purpose. And I didn't realize that until this week, till I really dove into this, uh, this chapter to see that, that Stephen was recounting history, yes, but he was using their history to show them that they didn't understand God and they didn't understand the temple and they didn't understand the law and they weren't ready for the coming of Jesus whom all these prophets uh, had predicted. And, and so... Stephen gets off, you know, 50 verses of testimony before he hits them with his allegations. And I think that, that the way this worked was that, uh, you know, he's recounting their history, highlighting some of the, the glorious points of their history. And maybe uh, the Sanhedrin kind of likes what they're hearing. Uh, you know, we love to talk about our glorious history. And so what Stephen is doing here is he's, he's basically laying a foundation. You know, a builder can't build a house until he first puts a foundation down. And Stephen can't make his accusations unless he first lays his foundation for what uh, the good parts of Israel were and then the bad parts about what the, what the prophets did who persecuted or when the prophets were persecuted. So uh, they didn't know where Stephen was going with this speech. He's gone on for 50 verses talking about their history, and that's when he finally hits them with the accusations. And what's interesting to me is that if he had started with the accusations in verses 51 to 53... You think he ever would have gotten to say what he wanted to say in verses 1 to 50? No. They would have stoned him, right? When you start off with, you stiff-necked people, you are always persecuting our prophets, and you don't understand you resist the Holy Spirit, well, that would have gotten him stoned right out of the gate. He never would have gotten to say the things that he wanted to say. And so uh, what I want to do is, is to kind of look at the passage in reverse. I want to look at the charges first, and then we'll go back and look at the first 50 verses, just kind of flying over them to see how Stephen was making his points as he went. And, and we'll see that uh, Stephen proved that they did not understand God or the temple or the law. And by the end of his speech, uh, I think G uh, Stephen makes it pretty plain that it's all about Jesus. It's not about the temple. It's not about the law. It's not about their tradition. It's all about Jesus. And they just never understood that. So let's read verses 51 through 53, and we'll take a look at those first. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Have you ever read the book from Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People? 
If you haven't, don't feel bad. Stephen hadn't either, apparently. Uh, because if this was going to be how you want to uh, talk to your prosecutors, probably this would not have found its way into Dale Carnegie's book. Uh, but you'll recall that Stephen is not really offering up a defense of himself, like in the classic uh, sense of a defense where you're talking about, you know, how am I going to exonerate myself from these charges? That's not what he's doing. He's being a witness for Christ, come what may, no matter what they do to him, he's just going to witness uh, to Christ. And you'll remember that Jesus, of course, reserved his harshest words for the uber-religious and the hypocritical Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus had no time for those guys, and Stephen is basically giving the Sanhedrin uh, the same treatment here. He charged them with resisting the Holy Spirit, with persecuting the prophets from Moses to Jesus, and with not keeping the law. And he does all of this from their own Hebrew scriptures, recounting the stories of Abraham to Joseph to Moses to David to Solomon, some Joshua thrown in, uh, and at the end of the day, he's showing them how their own scriptures uh, convict them of these things. Uh, so he, they resisted the Holy Spirit. One way to resist the Holy Spirit is to be stiff-necked. Now, if you've ever woken up with a stiff neck in the morning, you know that it's very difficult to move your head without pain, right? And so when you're looking around, you have to like turn your whole body almost if you want to see something. And so... To be stiff-necked kind of means uh, not able to be attuned to more than one thing. You can only look straight forward at having this tunnel vision. Uh, and so they, it means to be stubborn, uh, to be not able to hear God, not able to listen to God. And in Exodus 33, God said to Moses, I want you to lead my people uh, out of uh, Egypt and into the promised land, but... I will not go with these people because they are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy them along the way. And so he was very angry with this stiff-necked people. Uh, and so certainly uh, the echo of, of, uh, of Exodus 33 would have been ringing in the ears of the Sanhedrin. So one way they resist the Holy Spirit is to be stiff-necked. Uh, another way is that Stephen called them uncircumcised of heart. Uh, and that is another, test, uh, another phrase that's uh, loaded uh, in the Old Testament. We don't find that anywhere else in the New Testament, but it's, it's stated here in the Old Testament. Uh, we get it first from Deuteronomy chapter 30, uh, verse 6, where he talks about what it means to have a circumcised heart. It says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, so that you may live. There are places in the, in the Old Testament after this where it talks about having uncircumcised hearts, which means they don't love the Lord and they, they don't pass that tradition of loving the Lord on to uh, their own children. And, and what circumcision of the heart is, is a, it's a metaphor for the change that God does in your heart when you love God and when you follow God and when you become more like God. Uh, and, and so when that happens, when there's circumcision of heart, people's lives are changed. And he's saying, you, you Sanhedrin, your lives are unchanged. You are uncircumcised of heart. You don't love God. You haven't understood what God is saying to you uh, in his scriptures. And of course, that had to sting these guys, right? These are descendants of Abraham. They have the covenant of circumcision, the circumcision of the flesh that identifies them and sets them apart from all the Gentiles of the world. And he's saying, you're uncircumcised of heart. You're just like the Gentiles of the world. So that had to be a stinging rebuke uh, to these guys. And, 
And so that's another way that they resisted the Holy Spirit. And then finally, he just comes out and says, you are resisting the Holy Spirit. And uh, there's this little verse in Isaiah 63.10 that says, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, and therefore he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. So they grieve the Holy Spirit. They resist the Holy Spirit. And again, from their own Hebrew Bibles, he's showing them uh, how this is so, that they are enemies of God. And those who walk by the Holy Spirit, those who have been circumcised of heart, those who follow God, walking with the Spirit, hearing his voice, uh, they are the people who live in submission to God. But the Sanhedrin are the opposite of that. They are stiff-necked, resisting the Holy Spirit, uncircumcised of heart, and they are enemies of God. And he shows them this from Abraham to Moses to Joseph, uh, all the way to Jesus. They always resisted the Holy Spirit. So resisting the Holy Spirit is the first charge from verse 51. And he moves on to verse 52, as if that wasn't enough, he says, you always persecuted the prophets. Now, how did they always persecute the prophets? Uh, if we look at a couple passages from the Old Testament, we'll see that uh, Israel's own prophets state that Israel always kills its prophets. So when Elijah was fleeing from Ahab and uh, Jezebel, you may remember this story from 1 Kings 19. This was the story right after uh, Elijah had defeated the wicked kings who were supporting Baal, and God rained fire down on the altar and wiped out all of Baal's supporters and saved all of God's enemies. And then, inexplicably, Elijah turns and runs. He runs far away, and he finds himself in Beersheba, where God fed him, and God nourished him, and then God said to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? Which is a great question. You just defeated the Baals. You saw my power. Why are you running away? Well, it's because he replied, uh, verse 10 of chapter 19, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. So, Elijah is testifying that Israel always uh, destroys and kills the prophets. And you'll remember that uh, Queen Jezebel said, Elijah, you will not live 24 hours before I have your head. And so Elijah uh, was afraid of that. And so he ran away thinking that he was going to be the next in this line of prophets uh, that was killed by Israel. Nehemiah uh, said the same thing. In chapter 9, he said this about the Jews. They were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. You know, Isaiah was a prophet who testified about the coming of the Lord, as we uh, read uh, in the verse, who had, he previously announced the coming of the righteous one. Isaiah did that. And you know what they did to Isaiah? King Manasseh had him sawn in two. Can you imagine? Laid on a block and sawn with a saw right in two. Uh, so that's what the prophets of Israel get. They get killed by Israel. And Stephen is saying to them, you have always rejected your prophets. Uh, Stephen was particularly interested in the prophet Moses. Uh, Moses was rejected over and over again by Israel before ultimately he was accepted by them. And, and we can see their rejection of him uh, throughout uh, this long speech. Uh, in verse uh, 35, he said, this Moses they disowned. And in verse 39, he says, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him. And in their hearts, 
turn back to Egypt. So they persecute the prophets. They reject the prophets. They even kill the prophets. And they were unwilling to obey Moses. They rejected him, and they didn't even recognize Jesus, whom Moses prophesied about. And then Stephen added Jesus to this long list of prophets that they persecuted and rejected and killed when he said they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. So charging them with the crime of murder against Jesus. Their ancestors killed the prophets and now they killed Jesus, thinking that they were defending God, the law, and the temple. And yet in their zeal, they completely missed Jesus. They missed that he had been prophesied about in their own scriptures. Uh, Jesus was greater than the law. He was greater than the temple. And Stephen is actually offering them a chance at repentance here. And it's ironic that they reject him uh, as well. So they resisted the Holy Spirit. They persecuted and killed the prophets. And finally, uh, they didn't keep the law that they so earnestly depended on for their own salvation. They charged Stephen with constantly speaking out against the temple and speaking out against the law. But Stephen did no such thing. He showed great respect for Moses, the temple, and the law. So if we were to look at verses 20 to 22 of chapter 7, it says this, It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God. And he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and in deeds. So he had great respect for Moses. And, and not only that, he acknowledged that Moses' call came directly from God. Verses 30 to 32 say, After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and he approached to look more closely. And there came the voice of the Lord, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac. And Moses shook with fear and not, would not venture to look. So he shows great respect for Moses and acknowledges Moses' great respect for God. And then finally, uh, Stephen talks about how Moses received the living word, the living oracles of God. And this has to do with the law. Verse 38, this Moses is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Stephen was not rejecting Moses. He was not disrespecting the law. He upheld them and held them in the very highest esteem. But it was actually his accusers who were the lawbreakers. Uh, Stephen had just charged them with betrayal and with murder, and they couldn't deny it. They had put Jesus to death. The charges were true. They unlawfully killed Jesus, the righteous one, uh, and they failed to keep the law. They were guilty, just as Stephen had charged. The Jews accused Stephen of speaking out against God and the temple and the law, and Stephen turns the tables on them and says, no, it's not me who, who disrespects God. You disrespect God, and you don't understand the temple. You don't understand the law. So Stephen proved these things. He proved that they didn't understand God, they didn't understand the temple, and they didn't understand the law. Let's start with God. God is dynamic. God is not static. God is not set in stone. Uh, he's not contained, limited, constrained, or restrained. 
God is imaginative. Uh, he is constantly surprising us. His plan is not limited to our uh, human understanding. And Israel's leaders failed to recognize uh, the changing nature of God's plan over the course of history. And, and he, they failed to recognize that God is always saying, look, change is coming. There's always change in God's plan. Uh, and so Stephen weaves these stories of Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, Solomon, Joshua, all together to show, look how, how unexpected God can be at times. And so why would you think that, that he would ever not be uh, surprising or unexpected? He, he works in ways that we cannot understand and ways that we can anticipate. Uh, think about these people who are mentioned, these men who are mentioned. Uh, Abraham is called out of Ur, uh, and he's told that he'll be the father of a nation. Can you imagine being in Ur and trying to imagine what that must be like, and then that, some, that one day Abraham would actually be the father of a nation? Uh, Joseph, uh, rotting in an Egyptian cell, uh, somehow finds himself as prime minister over all of Egypt, saving Egypt from the famine that had come upon them. Could he have ever imagined such a thing? Uh, Moses, uh, running away when he was accused of murder. Could he have ever have imagined that he would uh, have a direct encounter with the Lord God on a burning bush and then lead uh, the Israelites out of Egypt? Uh, David, a shepherd boy, uh, tending sheep while his other brothers are in with Samuel, waiting to see if one of those was going to get the blessing. But no, it, it's David, a little shepherd boy, going to be king over all of Israel. And so, uh, God is surprising. He's amazing. He doesn't do what we expect him to do. He's not predictable. He can't be put in a box. And yet the Jews had put him in a box saying, well, we have the law. We have the temple. Uh, this is all there is. This is the final revelation. This is the final means of God's redemption. But Stephen used these Old Testament scriptures to show them God is dynamic. He's always changing. And these scriptures that you rely on, they point toward a coming Messiah. Can't you see it in your own book? Can't you, can't you see it in your scriptures? Moses himself even prophesied about him. Did you see that where Moses said, uh, another prophet will be raised up like me. Listen to him. And somehow they were simply not prepared for him. They did not understand God. They did not understand his ways. And next, they didn't understand the temple. The temple was a place for them to worship God. The temple was not a building to be worshipped in and of itself, right? Uh, the Jews put so much stock in the temple, uh, but ch tracing Stephen's speech from the beginning all the way through these 50 initial verses, we see Stephen saying that God is not restricted to a place. And the people who get God's blessing are not restricted to a place. They're the people who are seeking after a person. They're seeking after God. They follow after God, and they get God's blessing. So uh, if we were just to, to fly over this uh, chapter, in, in beginning in verse 2, God says to Abraham, uh, leave your country and your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. And so Abraham starts out in Ur, and he ends up in Haran, and then in Israel, then in Egypt, and then back to Israel, and yet he never owned a single foot of land uh, in all of the promised land. What was important uh, was that where God was, Abraham was. And wherever Abraham was, God was blessing uh, Abraham. God gave the covenant of circumcision to identify his chosen people because God knew that these people of his were going to be exiled uh, and taken captive in Egypt for 400 years. And it wasn't about the place. 
It was about this physical covenant that God was going to have with them. And so they would be identified by this covenant of circumcision, not by a location. And God can bless even in Egypt. We see that in Joseph's life. Joseph was born outside of Israel. His family moved into Israel, but then Joseph is uh, sold into Egyptian slavery and finds himself in an Egyptian jail. But God is not constrained just to, to, to uh, bless only in Israel. He can bless anybody wherever he wants to. And so he blesses Joseph in this prison and makes him second in command uh, to Pharaoh. And verse 9 says that God was with him. Moses, born and raised in Egypt, it says that in verses 21 and 22, he lived in Midian and had two sons there, verse 29. Uh, God appeared to him at Mount Sinai, verses 30 to 33. He was with Moses in the wilderness, verse 36, for 40 years. And, and Moses himself was never permitted to enter into the promised land because of his sin and disobedience. But Joshua got to lead the people into the promised land. And it says in verse 40 and 44 and 45 that God was with Joshua, as he went from outside the promised land and then into it. David fled all over the place trying to escape from the hand of Saul, and God was blessing David wherever he went outside the promised land. And he didn't bless David in Jerusalem until many, many years later. And, and even so, it wasn't David who was permitted to build the temple. In verse 47 to 50, it says that Solomon was the one who was permitted to build the temple. And right after Solomon built the temple, he prayed this amazing prayer, uh, understanding that this measly temple that he has built cannot contain God. This is what he said in 1 Kings 8.27. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Indeed, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I built. Solomon understood it. Uh, the Jews of the first century did not. And what's interesting is that as soon as this temple was built, that was the high point in Israel's history. As soon as they built that temple, the, the, the people devolved and descended and denigrated into idolatry so wicked that it resulted in Nebuchadnezzar exiling the Jews uh, from Israel in three separate deportations into Babylon. The last one in 586, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple and burnt it to the ground. Now, when these Israelites returned from their exile, they built a second temple. But why would they think that God would care any more about the second temple than he cared about the first temple? If they were going to be disobedient, idolatrous, not recognize who their son was, well, God doesn't care about temples. God cares about changed hearts. And that's what he saw in the disciples and in Stephen. And that's what he did not see uh, from the Sanhedrin. So from Abraham to Jesus to now, God's presence is not li uh, limited to a single place. He could bless uh, anyone outside of Israel or inside of Israel. And the people who receive God's blessing don't worship a place. They don't worship a building. Uh, they worship God. They seek after him. They love God. They follow after God. And they get God's blessing. Well, these Jews, they didn't understand God, they didn't understand the temple, and they didn't understand, finally, the law. God did not reserve his blessings only for people under the law. You know that Abraham, Joseph, and Moses all existed and lived before the law, and God was blessing them even before the law. And we live, of course, after the law, and we get God's blessing even after the law. Uh, the Jews thought that the law was the end of God's revelation, but it was not. The law is a sign pointing toward 
the one to come, who was able to fulfill the law perfectly that they could never do. And this is where uh, Christianity and Judaism really split. Uh, Christianity saw the law as a promise of one to come, uh, whereas the Jews saw it as the end all and be all. Christianity uh, de-emphasized the importance of the law, de-emphasized the importance of the temple in favor of Jesus who fulfilled them both, the law and the temple. And so once this line of demarcation became clear, that you had to choose between the law and the temple on one hand and Jesus on the other, uh, that's when uh, things got really intense between uh, Jews and Christians. And so we'll see that because 10 times in this speech, Stephen uses the pronoun our, our fathers or our something. Verse two, our father Abraham. Verse 11, our fathers could find no food. Uh, when Jacob heard there was no, were there, that there was food in Egypt, he sent our fathers there. That's verse 12. Jacob went down to Egypt and there he and our fathers died. Verse 15. The new Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph took advantage of our race. Verse 19. Verse 38, the God who was with our fathers. Verse 39, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him. Three more times in verses 44 and 45, our fathers is used. But then when Stephen levels his charges against the Sanhedrin, what does he say? He calls them your fathers. Stephen has made a choice. I do not identify with you Jews anymore and your temple and your law and your restrictions and your regulations. I identify with Christ. So these are your fathers who have done these things. I follow after Christ. You're doing just as your fathers did. I'm going to follow Christ. Stephen no longer identified with the Jews. He was no longer responsible for their history, and he identified with Jesus, which is, of course, what we must do. Come what may, whatever persecution we may face, we identify with Jesus. The Sanhedrin obviously decided that they We're going to be on the side of the Jews and the side of the law because they stoned Stephen. And we're going to see that story uh, next week. But for now, I want to talk about a few applications. And the first thing I want us to understand is that we need to keep our faith fresh. You know, the Jews refused to accept anything new. Uh, They didn't understand that God continued to give new revelation until the perfect revelation of his son, Uh, who came. And we see that in the beginning of uh, of, uh, the book of Hebrews. Uh, Their faith became dead. Uh, Their faith was the ritualistic keeping of the law and rules and regulations for the sake of keeping up appearances, uh, but their faith had no life in it. Uh, Do you remember that Bruce Willis movie, The Sixth Sense, uh, where the little kid comes up to Bruce Willis and he says, I see dead people. Uh, That is a chilling moment of the movie as he sees these dead people walking around and Bruce Willis says, "Uh, where do you see them? When do you see them? He says, they're everywhere, right? That's what what he's thinking. And our life as Christians should never look like that. When people walk inside a church, they shouldn't look around and see, say, I see dead people, right? We should be looking around this church and saying, I see a vibrant, alive church because God is dynamic. He's surprising. He's exciting. He's creative. He acts in ways so many different times that we cannot see coming, and it's so wonderful. And so our faith, our walk should reflect that. We should not look like dead people. And so 
Don't put God in a box thinking, you know, God never acts like this and, and he always does things like that. Who knows what God might teach you today? Who knows how God might answer uh, one of your prayers tomorrow, a prayer that you've been praying for 30 years he could answer tomorrow uh, if it is his will. So don't allow your faith to become dead. Be on the lookout for opportunities to share your faith, stretch your faith, tell people how God is working in your life. Uh, just talk about your faith, share it with others. And that's how we keep our faith fresh. Finally, or secondly, avoid the mistake of the Sanhedrin. They lived in the promised land. They received the law. They had this amazing temple. They had a building where they could go to meet God. They were God's chosen people. Uh, they were God's covenant people and they enjoyed special privileges as such. And yet they still were not saved despite all of that. The mistake of the Sanhedrin was thinking that the land and the law and the building was enough. They missed Jesus completely. They never got that part of it. If they had understood God, the temple or the law, they would have seen that a Messiah was coming and they would have recognized Jesus for who he was. So Jesus is all we need. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead so that we can have eternal life. The law, the land, and the temple don't save anybody. They just show us where we have failed. And Jesus is the one who saves, and, and they never saw that. Uh, the New Testament churches, they met in houses. They didn't have buildings like this beautiful building that we're in now. Uh, they met in the public square when they didn't have a house to meet in. They weren't searching after buildings. They were searching after God. And uh, don't get me wrong, I love our building, but we need to be focused on God. God is our priority, and we follow after God. And finally, know your Bible. The problem with the Jews was not that they were, uh, that they were too biblical. As we've seen, it's because they were not biblical enough. They didn't know their scriptures. They didn't understand their scriptures. Even if they could recite uh, their entire Hebrew Bible, they didn't know what it meant. And, and Stephen was showing them what it meant. And, and Stephen knew his scriptures. And so he was able to correct error and intolerance and the attacks that were coming upon him. So are there attacks? Is there error? Is there persecution against the Christian church today? Yeah, there's some persecution against the Christian church today. Uh, if we know our scriptures, we can correct error and we can point out where people are wrong and, and we can uh, fend off the attacks that come our way. Uh, for Stephen, unfortunately, it was going to result in his death next week. But what a glorious welcome uh, he received. Uh, so we'll talk about that next week. But I just want us to remember to keep our faith fresh, avoid the mistake of the Sanhedrin and know your Bible. You can do a lot of good talking to people just by knowing your Bible. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this amazing chapter. I thank you for Stephen's incredible courage. Lord, um, may each one of us have uh, even a part of the courage that Stephen had so that we might go out and witness boldly to a world that needs to hear it, regardless of what the circumstances and consequences of that preaching might be. Uh, Lord, we're going to find out later that, that Paul was there when they were stoning Stephen. And Paul's life was profoundly changed by what he saw witnessing how Stephen lived and how Stephen died. Lord, let us understand that we can have a, a tremendous impact on unbelievers simply by how we live. And Lord, if we get the chance to testify with words, I pray that we would do that too. Uh, the way we live our lives is a witness to others, Lord. Give us the power, give us the courage. And Lord, we ask that you 
uh, go boldly before us and give us the courage to speak boldly to others who need to hear. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen.